Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 38. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For, one, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, now, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that 
this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word and into this very important conversation, this very important moment in your life, these last moments that you spent with your disciples, Lord, may you help us to understand what you intend for your word, what you intend today for us from your word. Lord, pray for your spirit to give us wisdom, discernment as we consider these things. Would you guide my words as I preach? May they be true. Would you guide our ears and our hearts that we would be receptive to what it is you are saying? I pray all these things in your name. Amen. I want you to stop for a second and think about a significant family or community event in your life. Perhaps one that has strengthened the bond between you and others. One that reminds you of important events. One that brings joy, celebration. Now tell me, that event that, whatever that is, is eating together a significant part of it? My guess is that the answer is yes. And that's not random. That is actually by design. It's actually, I think, hardwired into us as human beings by our Creator. You see, immediately when the people of Israel left Egypt, one of God's first objectives was to set up a feast. And think about this. The people of God have just left slavery in Egypt where everyone who's among them had lived their entire lives in that one place. They're in the wilderness. They've got no home. They're traveling. They don't know exactly where they're going or or exactly where they're going to stop or when they're going to get there. And God says, "Well, hold on. Stop right here. Let's take a second and let's set up a feast. I need to make sure you understand how you should celebrate this event before you take another step farther. A seven-day celebration that started with the Passover meal. Every year it was celebrated. Every year to remember what God did for His people for century upon century, all the way until Christ Himself made it an important point to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And this celebration was never celebrated alone. There was 
There was no concept of identifying with God purely as an individual, right? It was a communal event. It wasn't what God did for me. It was what God did for us. Always us. There's a connection between how God relates to His people and how they relate to one another and how they celebrate that. They were to remember and worship God, but, but God designs how they are to do this. They're to do it around food and celebration. Amen? I mean, this is a good thing. We have a good God, right? He says, no, 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 no. Like, I know that I did this whole wiping out the firstborns thing, and I delivered you from slavery, and it's a big deal, but I don't want you to kind of like all gather together and like solemnly, just like we just need to have a moment of silence here to remember what God's done. No, what I want you to do is kill the lamb, eat a feast, have some fun. That's what I want you to do. Remember and worship God through that. It's not merely worship, nor is it merely a family meal, but it's both at the same time. I don't know about you, but I kind of like the fact that I can worship God by eating. I mean, that, that brings me joy. Sadly, many, even most of God's people, failed to remember that rightly. Even still, Jesus honors and obeys that command. Here in Luke 22, we see that. From the start of Luke, we saw that even Jesus' family, when he was young, when he was still even a baby, they were diligent to celebrate the feasts according to and beyond God's law. So God, the Heavenly Father, put his son, Jesus Christ, into a family who was diligent to pass down these celebrations to their children because it matters to God. when a new and greater work of God for His people occurs, the old gives way to the new. Not to negate what has been, but to enhance and to expand it. That celebration that was broken, that God's people ought to have celebrated, but often did or did wrongly, actually here, Christ turns into a better celebration. At the center of our passage, Jesus declares a transition. What was broken and inferior was giving way to something better and superior, not just in how we relate to God, but by consequence also in how we relate to each other. And I think that's part of this equation that we often forget. We often isolate what's happening here as just between what, what it means between my relationship with God and God with me, but we forget that it necessarily changes our relationship with one another. That if you're in relationship with Jesus and I'm in relationship with Jesus, that that changes our relationship fundamentally. The bottom line is this, Jesus turns broken relationships into better relationships. And you think, well, that, that's, that's odd because here we have one of the people that is closest to Christ conspiring to betray him. 
And I'm sure that each one of you have had someone close to you, a Christian perhaps, a church member perhaps, who has conspired and betrayed and hurt you. And yet, I will say it again, Jesus turns broken relationships into better relationships. First in how he relates to his people, and he always relates to his people through covenants, through these promises that he makes that come with blessings and curses if it's broken. And we see, and we'll look at this first part, and we'll find that a broken covenant becomes a better covenant here. But then also in how he has his people who are in covenant with him relate to one another. Covenant with one another. And we'll see also that a broken community here becomes a better community through Christ's work. There's one place God has instituted wherein all of this is expressed. One one institution that encapsulizes it. And it's not random. It's wired into our very souls, as I said. It's a celebration that we have together over a table. And we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And we will partake in it together after the sermon. It's meant to remind us of all these things. So let us look at what Christ does here, consider it, and then let us cap it off by celebrating that, that meal together. A broken covenant becomes a better covenant. Luke gives us, in verses 1 to 23, a little window into the insufficiency of the old covenant and the community that it created. Not that the covenant itself was bad. The Bible's clear that it was not. But sinful men often warped it into something bad. You see, it was always meant to move people, God's people, to something better. This broken covenant, though, becomes a better covenant in this, that we we turn life into death, but God has prepared to turn death into life. I want to look at each of these phrases as we go through this first part of the passage. In verses 1 through 7, we turn life into death. There's an irony in the setting here at the very beginning. Do you, do you recognize this? It says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And what is happening, does it say? And they are seeking to kill the God of the Passover. It is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the celebration of judgment, the judgment of death on God's enemies in order to deliver God's people. And the leaders of those people are seeking to kill God. How ironic is that? How sadly warped is that? It is a microcosm of what God's people have done to his covenant for centuries. This covenant was meant to bring life. God first graciously delivered his people, made them his people, and then gave them the law, said, do this and live. I've given you everything you need to live well in the land I've given you. God gave them life and then taught them how to live 
that life. And they took that law, forgetting faith, forgetting trust in God, and misused it. For them, it became about doing the law in order to live, in order to be God's people, in order to be worthy of deliverance. But it was never that way. God delivered his people first. First, he said, I am your God and you are my people. Now do this. But they flipped it around. Rather than doing it because God had delivered them and made them his people, they did the opposite. And the very feast that was to remind them of that fact became a burden, a crushing burden. It became death. And this is a temptation today, right? Community that is meant to be life to us becomes death to us too often. And we generally, generally this happens in two ways. Either we disregard God's promises, making his commands into hopeless drudgery, and God's commands become too heavy to us. Because we do them outside of faith rather than in faith. And then we start putting that weight onto other people in the community because we realize we can't bear it, so you need to bear it for me. And it becomes death to them. Or knowing that the weight is too heavy, we just disregard God's commands rather than trust Him. Rather than trusting Him and then doing what He says, we just go, well, well, I'll just not trust Him and not do what He says. Right? Grace. We we misrepresent it as. And the burden of the sinful mess that results is more death. Life becomes death through sin. And our sin hurts others in the community. As we disregard God's word, we disregard his commands, we disregard his law, for our own selfish benefit, we end up hurting others in the community around us. We turn life into death. But the story doesn't end there, but God had prepared. Verses 8 through 13, we shift in the story, verses 8, in verse 8, the day came for what? To sacrifice the lamb. And I think here Luke intends a double meaning. Yes, The day had come to sacrifice the actual lamb for the Passover meal, but there was another lamb that was prepared to be sacrificed. Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare this meal, which meant not only that they needed to find a room to eat it in, but they actually needed to go and kill a lamb. And they ask, where do I do this? And Jesus tells them, go into the city, find a man carrying a jar of water, etc. And that would have been an odd thing to find a man carrying a jar of water. You wonder, well, well, you know, how did they know which man? Well, there wouldn't have been very many men carrying a jar of water. So it would have been obvious, oh, that guy, he's the only one. And so they follow Jesus' instructions, and what we find there is that while they are preparing the Passover, in reality, God had already prepared the Passover there. Jesus had already set up what was going to occur. And so who was, who was preparing this Passover? Was it Peter and John, or was it Jesus? Of course, the answer is yes, 
Yes. And the irony is that while Judas is preparing to betray Jesus, Jesus is preparing this meal. While Judas is preparing to betray the lamb, Jesus already knows, and in fact, that is prepared as well. And so this passage sets up the next scene that this, that this Passover had been set up to happen from ages past, from the foundation of the world even. And we freely do things, and yet also God is sovereign over those things. But this passage also looks back to verses 1 to 7. Yes, Judas and the Jewish leaders were preparing to betray Jesus, but God had also prepared those events. Listen, when things go sideways in community, in church community, with relationships, it doesn't mean that God isn't sovereign over it. It doesn't mean that God isn't using it. It doesn't mean that maybe his biggest plans for you might actually be through that pain. It was for his son Jesus. Why would it not be for us as well? What a relief it is to know that both our salvation and the stability of God's church neither depends on us always doing what's right, nor can it be destroyed by wicked men doing wrong. And yet it still does matter that we're faithful and not unfaithful. For woe to the one through whom Christ is betrayed. And so I finish this phrase that encapsulates these first 23 verses. We turn life into death, but God had prepared to turn death into life. And we see that in the critical scene, verses 14 through 23, this meal in the upper room, right? And we went into some detail on this in Good Friday, so I won't go into as much detail today. But for our purposes in this sermon, I want you to see that what was prepared wasn't just a Passover meal, but it was Jesus being sacrificed for his own people, for their sins, that God would covenant with his people by the blood of his son. They were to kill a lamb as a replacement for the firstborns, but here, rather than the Passover lamb, the true firstborn of Israel was prepared to die. You understand that in Egypt, all the firstborns of Israel were saved. And from then on, the reason that they sacrificed the first, they always sacrificed a firstborn as a replacement, a firstborn lamb as a replacement for the firstborn of their family. But here, it is reversed. And the true firstborn of Israel, Jesus Christ, dies once and for all, for all of God's people. Jesus will take that death and will turn it into life for those who are really His. See, the Passover meal was always meant to point them to faith in the true firstborn. In every century, from, from Egypt until Christ, it was meant to point them 
to faith in the true firstborn who was to come, who would be sacrificed in order to deliver the people from their slavery, not to Egypt, their bondage, not to Pharaoh, but from their slavery and bondage to sin, to bring them into freedom in the kingdom of God. And that meaning was a mystery before, but now it's plainly revealed through Jesus' death on the cross, his body given, his blood shed, to ensure the salvation of his people and the Lord's Supper instituted to reassure us of that promise, that our sins are forgiven, that we're united with Him, and that we'll be raised to eternal life with Him as well. But there's one little problem, one little fly in the ointment in this scene, isn't there? There's a rat among them. There's a betrayer. And they begin to question who would do such a thing? But quickly the conversation shifts from who would betray their Lord. Quickly the conversation shifts from concern about Christ to concern about themselves, does it not? Who would be Lord over others? And I highlight that to show how quickly one person's sin against God within Christian community, even the one led by Christ himself can become a whole bunch of people sitting against God and one another. And if it was true there, church, we need to be on our guard because it can be true here as well. It can be true in any church. It's just that quick. And the community that was meant to bring life begins to bring about death. But in this new covenant, in this new kingdom that's being created, Jesus promises ways in which He, He actually preserves that community. And so, we turn from a broken covenant becoming a better covenant to a broken community becoming a better community. Sin hurts. And it hurts church community. It hurts churches. And I think we're quick to conclude, oftentimes Christians are quick to conclude when sin happens that this church is irredeemable. And we head to another one. But it's a matter of time before sin occurs again, right? Because we're sinful. Or in the extreme, the extreme of this is an individual or a family just kind of deciding, well, I'm going to partition myself, we're going to partition ourselves from the larger church community altogether, they think to protect themselves from those people's sin. How quickly can we fall into that trap? I need to protect myself from those people's sin so bad. But there are at least two flawed assumptions that are often overlooked in this. First, that God doesn't know sin is going to happen and that he hasn't provided his people what they need to confront it, to repent, and to forgive one another for those sins. And that, and that this process is actually vital for the sanctification of both the sinner and the one who's sinned against. We think that today in this world, the best church is the one where sin doesn't happen, and that would be great, but we know it will. But, but what God really is doing is He's taking that sin and He's using it not only to sanctify the person who sinned, to show them, to reveal them the sinfulness of their heart and where they're wrong so that they can 
repent and be renewed, but also for the one who sinned against. How often has someone sinned against you and they've repented and you've thought to yourself, well, dang it, I don't want to forgive you. Why'd you have to go and repent? Now the Bible says I'm supposed to forgive you and I'd rather just stay angry at you. I'd rather stay over here in my, in my brooding uh, frustration about what you did to me. And now I'm, now I'm supposed to forgive you and be reconciled to you? You see, it forces us to be like who? It forces us to be like Jesus. It reveals in our hearts the ways in which we think we're like Christ but we may not actually be so much like Christ when people sin against us. And when everything's perfect, well, we can just kind of go on thinking like, I'm pretty good. But when someone sins against you, when someone offends you, when someone annoys you, when someone frustrates you, now we find out, are you going to run or are you going to reconcile? In Christ, he didn't run. He sat at that table with his betrayer. He went to the garden where his betrayer knew he would be because he knew it was God's will. What will we do? So there's a, a, a wrong assumption here. The second wrong assumption is that we miss, we miss that that mindset is prideful. It's inherently prideful. We think, we think that we have a better idea of what it means to follow Christ than someone else. And you know what? Maybe you do on some points. But, but we're missing, when we do that, we're missing the more essential point that following Christ means humbly forgiving and bearing with one another. It means even when someone sins against, doesn't sin, sin against you, but just does the thing that annoys you, that you learn to deal with it. And love them anyways, because that's what Christ does. How many times must Peter have been just absurdly annoying to Jesus? Like, Peter, really again? And yet, not only does Jesus bear with him, but Jesus puts the load for all of his disciples on him. Peter... He looks to Peter first. So what we, what we seek when we leave, when we're hurt in, 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 in church community and we leave and we try to go somewhere else or we just disconnect ourselves altogether, what we seek is protection from, uh, uh, we seek protection from that sin, but, but actually in reality, that, that sin is often far less dangerous than the isolation that we have now committed ourselves to. Because in isolation, who will call us out for our sin? Because in isolation, when and how will we be sanctified? Because in isolation, when will we represent Christ to another Christian who sinned against us by forgiving them and they go, oh my goodness, that's what Jesus' forgiveness is like. 
We would readily admit our, our personal sinful brokenness and our need for Jesus and His salvation to become a Christian and to grow in Christ's likeness. But do we depend on the same redeeming and restoring Jesus when it comes to the community of believers that we belong to? Sometimes the worst things do happen. I have seen it in churches. We don't always get everything right. We don't always get what we need. We let people down. We betray one another. If God redeems my sins, though, if He redeems my circumstances in order to sanctify me when I repent and continue in faith, do we believe that for the community that we're in, for the church that we're part of? Do we believe that for the, the church? And I think in the second half of our passage, there are three ways that our sins try to ruin covenant community. I put them into categories for your note-taking pleasure, position, performance, and provision. They all start with P's because that's what pastors do. I had to add a joke in there just to lighten it up for a second. Now, none of these things, position, performance, and provision, I want you to understand none of these things are inherently bad. These three things are not the problem in and of themselves. The problem, friends, is sin. The only answer for sin is, of course, Jesus and the gospel of his kingdom. So I want to look at each of these three. I want to understand what Christ is saying here. Ask a question in regards to how we should respond, and then I want to help you see a promise from Christ in it. Let's look first at position. It's, it's not hard to imagine how an argument over who will do the very bad thing becomes a debate about who does the best things, right? I mean, just hang out with any group of people for a while. You know, your kids. Who did this? Well, I always do the right thing. You know, it's like immediately we jump to the other end of the spectrum, becomes a debate about who the best child is in order to make sure that everyone knows I didn't do that so I don't get in trouble for it. And Jesus uses Gentile kings as an example saying, hey, not so with you. It shouldn't be this way. But he, I want you to see that he isn't saying that there's no hierarchy in his kingdom. In verse 30, he clearly tells us that those who endure with him uh, are given thrones. And in 2 Timothy 2, 12, we see as well those who endure with Christ, he says, will reign with him. So it's not that there's not hierarchy or position in his kingdom. Rather, he's going after their wrong heart position that produces wrong actions around those positions in the community. As 1 Peter 5.3 says, those with authority shouldn't use it to domineer, but should be examples. The assumption there, of course, the, actually the explicit command is there ought to be people in authority. The problem is the way in which you're going about that ought to be different than the Gentile kings. Just as Jesus uses his example of himself Clearly, everyone knew in the room that he was the authority, and yet he says, look at how I serve you. 
That's what I use my authority and my position for. So when we think about our position, whatever that is, we should ask this instead. From my position, whether I think it's a high position or a low position, it's the position that God has put me in in this moment. From my position, how can I serve others as Christ serves me? The person who's in authority shouldn't make themselves a servant hierarchically, but should make themselves a servant in attitude and in action. They have more authority so that they can be in greater, a greater service to those under them, just like Jesus did. Listen, what's better than having someone over you who looks out for you, not themselves? I think about anything that you've been a part of, a coach, a boss, uh, whatever, a, any, anywhere, The best thing is when the per- there's a person over you who really has the mindset of serving you, of looking out for you, of taking the responsibility that they've been given and using it for rightful benefit of those under them. That's the best thing, and that's what we ought to do. But this is hard. It's hard because we start to ask ourselves, what, if, what am I giving up that my position could get me? So we wouldn't, maybe we wouldn't say it that way, right? We wouldn't be so explicit about our sinful hearts. But that kind of is what happens. What am I giving up that my position could get me if I take advantage of it? But here's where the new covenant is better because it's built on better promises, promises that are based on Jesus' work. The promise is this, Jesus' glory exceeds worldly power. Jesus promises to glorify those who serve him through his trials. And we serve Jesus when he serves his people. Jesus promises that he will exalt us. We don't need to exalt ourselves. That he will take care of us. We don't need to, to get ours. What do you want? Do you want to get yours or do you want to get what Christ has for you? I'm guessing Jesus gives better than me. The better position is what God promises us. And Jesus is the best example of all of this. He was betrayed by his own and yet God exalted him above all things. So when sin makes things go sideways in church, we don't have to freak out and grab for position. It's always a big temptation. We can rest in God's promise, respond in obedience and in service, and know that God will exalt us at the proper time. Second category that is discussed here is performance. There's a bit of a problem coming up for the disciples. There's a bit of a problem, and Jesus tells them about it, verse, starting in verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, he speaks directly to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you, but the you in that passage is not you singular, it's you plural. He's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan demands to have all of you apostles, to sift all of you apostles like wheat. But, he says in verse 32, I have prayed for you that you may not fail. And when you, singular, Peter, when you, Peter, have turned, strengthen your brothers. 
Jesus' response is to pray for them and to direct Peter to a particular command on the other side of his resurrection. Jesus says that he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And Peter's response to Jesus' statement is this, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Knowing that you have prayed for me reassures me that I really won't fail. No, that's not Peter's response, is it? Peter's response is, of course I would never deny you. Of course I can do it. I'm fantastic. I'm Peter. And of course we know that he, in his own strength, will fail. Peter looks to his own strength to bolster himself, but instead, instead we should ask this, from my ability, the ability that God has given me, how can I strengthen others as Christ strengthens me? The church is called Christ's body for a reason. Ephesians 4 tells us that we should strengthen one another in faith. This is why it's so critical to be a part of a church community, even a flawed one, because we need that. We can't do it on our own. We were never meant to do it on our own. While it's better if we strengthen one another in positive ways, God can use even our flaws and our sins to strengthen other people. Rather than cutting each other down through comparisons of who's performing better, we ought to build one another up in Christ with the abilities that Christ has given us. We ought to think about our strengths and remember that it's God who has given us those things. That it's not us, it's from Him. We ought to use them for His people. The promise is this, Jesus' work exceeds Satan's devices. Jesus prayed for Peter, and it worked. And you think, well, whoa, 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 Cody, d- it didn't work. Peter totally denied him three times before, before the rooster crowed, right? Yeah, Peter failed when he denied Jesus. But also, yes, his faith did not fail. And yes, he turned again. And yes, he strengthened his brothers. And actually going through that and failing. And failing in his own power helped him from then on to turn to Christ's power instead. It was actually the turning point that enabled him to do the work that he needed to do for the church for the years after Christ had left. And we're reassured of this in Jesus' work. Satan's scheme to betray Jesus not only failed in keeping Jesus in the grave, but it actually became Satan's biggest defeat. Did it not? And I wonder how many of you look at things that have happened in your life, failures, places where you thought you could and you ended up totally failing and you think, well, see, I I just can't. I just might as well give up. My encouragement to you is this. Don't give up. Just stop depending on your own strength. 
Turn to Christ. Give that strength to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Use that strength for other people and see that Christ does not give you exactly what you need for whatever he's called you to. So we have position and we have performance, two areas in which we often end up sinning vying for position, seeking to prove ourselves to others. But the final area is provision. We get to this last bit of the conversation before leaving the upper room. And Jesus, he begins by referring back to Luke 10. If you remember that in Luke 10, he sent out the 72 to go and to preach the gospel of the kingdom in all these different cities before he got there. And there he told them to go with nothing And when someone provided for them, when they were willing to bring them into their house to go into their house and to share this gospel with them, and and, and they lacked nothing when they did this, God, Christ provided for their means through this. But then it says here, but now, so Jesus says, upon my death, when I leave you, something is changing in the way that I'm going to provide for you. They no longer should expect provision in that way. How should they expect it? Now he says, gather provision and take it with you when you go. Don't depend on the goodwill of those who you're bringing the gospel to. Rather, have your provision and then go and bring the gospel to them. Things are going to change. There's confusion, I think, around this passage. And I debated about how much to get into this particular confusion We don't really have time to go real in-depth with it, but Jesus mentions here taking a sword, and understandably, this is confusing for us because we know that Jesus is here willingly going to his death. We know that here Jesus calls us, uh, or we know that through his life, Jesus calls us to love others, to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, and and what what does that mean that he would say and, and take a sword with you? And some people read this and they they would say perhaps Jesus intends to be ironic. In this way, through irony, he would be saying to them, of course you don't need swords. I'm providing for you. But, but if we take swords in that light, then we have to take knapsacks and money bags in that light as well, right? In the same way, we would have to say then, if you're truly Jesus' disciples sent out by him to do his work, then, then you don't need extra possessions and you don't need a bank account. You need to just trust God and have the clothes on your back. And of course, We'd say, well, that's fine if someone wants to do that, but we don't, no one, no one is saying that that's the only way that we ought to be on mission for Christ. No, we are to see those things as God's provision for us, to be used rightly for the mission, not as things that have to be sworn off in order to be on mission. Two common objections that come up here around swords is first, well, well, but we don't convert people to Christ by force, nor should we be people who seek revenge. And I would say to both those objections of, yes, 100%, 100%. We ought never to convert by force, and we ought never to seek revenge. But I think that's a confusion of categories. It denies that there could be a good use or a reasonable use for something based on the existence of a bad use for that thing. 
We don't reject the usefulness of a thing because someone somewhere abuses that. We don't stop driving cars because someone somewhere ran their car into a crowd of people, for instance. We don't give up on authority because someone somewhere abused authority. We don't not give to a church because someone somewhere embezzled money from a church. Rather, we seek to use it rightly as God would have us use it. No one, if we use that kind of logic towards the other things that Jesus talks about, how would that work? Jesus told them to take a money bag, for instance, yet no one says, wait, 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 wait. No, that can't be what he means because we don't convert people by bribery. No one says that. Nor that this, you know, that, that, that taking a money, money bag means that, uh, well, you can't, you can't be taking a money bag because Christians shouldn't be greedy. Well, no one, no one says that, right? No, no, you shouldn't take a knapsack because we shouldn't be covetous of possessions or vain about our extra set of clo- clothing, our nice cloak that we have. No one, no one says that. We know intuitively that that's an abuse of a thing. So I'm not seeking to, to, to here in this moment, uh, lay out a, an entire, you know, Apologetic for why self-defense is something that God permits, yet I think we ought to make sure that the way in which we're interpreting a passage actually makes sense with the passage, rather than bringing a, a, a presumption that we have into that passage and then interpreting it inconsistently. There's an an argument against the right use of a thing by citing the wrong use of a thing that I think is really prevalent in our culture today. And I think it's a tricky scheme of Satan that we need to be on our guard against. And it's especially influential, I think, in our culture because our culture in general doesn't truly admit that sin is a thing. I mean, we might talk about sin, we might talk about evil, but not in the way that the Bible talks about sin and evil, right? Sin and evil are a thing out there, a thing imposed on us, rather than a thing that comes from our own hearts, which is what the Bible says. And so we start transferring evil and sin, and thus we transfer guilt from people who are sinful to objects. People are really mostly good, our world says. And sin and evil come from the things outside of them that must have been pressed onto them, the, the, the system that they were born into or the family that it imposed on them or the situation that happened to them. And we in the church, we know that's not what the Bible, how the Bible describes it. We know that's not how God's word speaks about these things, but, but that logic is really sneaky and really well-intentioned Christians who, want, who genuinely want to stop evil in the world are influenced by it, and we've got to be careful because what we can do when we do that is we can actually take away God's good means for fighting evil. We can actually take away good things. Satan wants to trick us that a good thing 
is a bad thing by pointing to the abuse of that thing so that we don't do the good thing anymore. Right? And it happens all over the place. We need to be on our guard against that. The question we need to ask ourselves here, or rather let me say this, the point that Christ is making here is that He will continue to provide for His people, but rather than in the way He was doing it before He left, now He is doing it through His body, through His people. It's not any less His provision. It's just in a different way. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this, from what I have, from what God has given me, how can I support others as Christ supports me? See, the provision when the 72 were sent out came from God through those they were evangelizing. But now it's different. The disciples ought not to depend on those whom they go to for provision, We know that as we read the book of Acts, if you've read the book of Acts, we know that a lot of times the ones who go, they go to are very much opposed to them. Things are different now. Instead, they should find provision from God amongst themselves. They should expect that full provision comes from what God has given them and the other believers in their community. They didn't all need swords. Two was enough. Luke records these things in Acts as Christians sell property and help one another as they give to one another. As one church takes up a collection for another church who's in the, midst, in the midst of a famine and is facing hardship and so on, that is what we ought to do. That ought to be part of what the church does in this better covenant, in this better community. Once again, there's a promise. The promise is this, Jesus' means exceed temporal needs. Jesus quotes here Isaiah 53, 12, a prophecy that about Jesus's death and how it provides for our, great, our greatest need, how it provides a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. And in doing so, and winning the victory, it says there in Isaiah 53, 12, that from the riches that he has won, he gives spoil to his people. When I give to someone else, do I believe that Christ has given me far more than I can give? Do I believe that he'll meet needs far beyond what I'm giving up? Community of people who are all doing that is, would be quite the community, would it not? Jesus turns broken relationships into better relationships, both between himself and his people but also between his people amongst them. And the two always go together. God does not separate the deliverance of his people from the fellowship of his people. Those two things meet together at the table. Meet together as a church physically, not virtually, physically comes together and physically eats bread and physically takes the cup together. communing together over a meal where Christ really does feed them. Where Christ really does reassure us of his forgiveness, unites us together with him, reassures us of our resurrection and eternal life. Let us not give up, but work for the love of Christ in his church. Let us not give give up hope 
but hope in Christ that if he can do a work in me, he can do a work in us. He can do a work amongst his disciples where one would even betray him to death. He can do a work amongst us as well.